Hola chicas, this is Consuelo Crosby. Welcome to our bonus episodes that are occurring from the Lifelinks podcast. These are the offshoots, the stories that got thrown on the cutting room floor because they were flushing out each episode just a little bit longer than I felt comfortable asking you to listen. So where our typical episodes are around 30 minutes, these shorts, these dirty deets are going to be around 15 a little more casual. These personal stories will be launching randomly, but they'll always be tied back to another episode that we've already published until we get caught up a little bit. And then we're going to be doing them beforehand so you can get a feel of what's coming. I want to really emphasize the experience because I feel it will resonate with your current day. It will give you information of, oh, this has been going on for a very long time like a relay from generation to generation, or if it's more like a marathon in just one generation, like in my lifetime, this is going to change. Or even a sprint. Let's just change it and get it done. So I hope you enjoy the stories. They're going to be more casual. No intro, no outro. I'll always designate back to the episodes they came from. This is what got cut out of episode 12 when we were talking about imposter syndrome, because this was when you were the only woman. I mean, the only woman. And it's less about imposter syndrome then and more about survival and how to keep your dream interests in engineering or there was no tech yet. Tech was just a baby. Engineering, the math and sciences, any of that alive when you're under such harsh conditions, such horrible ecosystem. When you are trying to maintain your femininity without it being a welcome mat for everybody, you're trying to maintain your heritage without blending in, and you're trying to gain your professional status, your career, be taken seriously as the only woman. So it's less about imposter and more about the how the hell am I going to survive this? One of my first jobs was the Solano County Jail. And this was when I was 22 years old. Such a baby. I don't know why they even let me do anything. Such a young age to be defying gravity and earthquakes. In our profession, you have to do the calcs. You have to do the drawings. The drawings are basically the instructions for the contractors telling them how to build the building. They wouldn't know what to do if you didn't tell them. That's what a structural engineer is. Actually, compare it to Legos. If you were to take a really complicated Legos kit and you've got that really pretty picture on the outside, you're all excited. That's why you buy it. Okay, that's the architect. And inside you've got all these bazillion pieces, right? If you were to take all those bazillion pieces and just dump them on the floor and go, okay. Let's build that really pretty picture. And there's no instructions. Yeah. Okay. All those little pieces, that's the contractor. And he's scratching his head. There's no instructions. There's no engineer on the job. There's no instructions. There's no way in hell you're going to put that Lego set together. There's going to be a whole lot of missing pieces just lying around going, eh, that's close enough. (laughs) Let's see how long that stays standing up. That's your heads up. 
on structural engineering in the most base form. Jails are really trippy to design anyway. I mean, it's really head trippy to design. And it's not because of gravity and earthquakes or people or anything. It's the way the architects are talking to you. I'm not even going to describe it here because it, it was severe. It's pretty traumatic. You get a feel for what people are thinking even before the jail is constructed, even before it's designed, how they view the people that are unfortunately going to find themselves in this. It really makes you think much deeper and develop much more empathy for what's happening inside jails. Each individual cell is only six feet wide and it's maybe 12 feet deep. So only bunk beds could be at the end. And we had to include the design. I should have had some better understanding of what it would be like when I found myself on site to do the construction administration. So after the, your buildings go into construction, you have to go on site and make sure that the contractors doing it per your instructions. Per your Lego instructions, you got to make sure that they're putting each piece, literally each piece in the right place, the right distance, the right number, can't have them cheating, all of it. I had to go out on site and make sure they were doing this. They sent me out alone, which I was sure I'll go. Of course I'm going to go. And I go out there and this site's huge. There's probably a hundred guys on site because it's not just the construction crew. There's other specialties involved. No problem. I mean, if it was four guys at home and it was 40 guys at school and, and it was 40 guys at work, what's a hundred more? It's fine. I can handle this. And I go on site and all heads turn. They knew I was such a baby. My boots were totally new. I had tried to scratch them up, put mud, make them look like, oh, yeah, I'm a veteran. I've done this all the time. It's like the kid walking into class the first day of school with a bright white tennis shoes, brand new off the shelf. It's cool now. It was not cool then. I'm walking on site trying to figure out. Who do I even meet? Who's in charge? What should I do? Where do I go first? To say I'm on site and here's what I'm going to be checking. And I see this big group of guys and they're waving me over. Well, that's a start. They'll help me. As I get closer, I notice one's in uniform. He introduces himself. Hey, little missy. Wolf. Yes. This was only 40 years ago, people. Hey, little missy. What are you doing here? I said, I'm the engineer of this project. I came to do a site observation and make sure everything's going as planned, the way we designed it, the way that it's supposed to be built. Oh, that's perfect, he says. And all these guys are around him and they're just kind of snickering. They're in front of what looks like one of the cells I was describing because there's a full size masonry block cell with concrete on the top, door, everything. And he says, oh, I'm glad you're here for that because I just had them build a mock-up of an actual cell. I wanted to make sure it was to my liking. Think about the power with that man. 
It was to my liking before y'all go build thousands of these. Oh, that's a good idea. He's like, yeah, we got the door on it. Look, it actually locks. We got the window so you can't get out. And then he goes, why don't you go on in and take a look? I think it's much worse thinking about it now, 35 years later, knowing what I know of how that situation could have turned out. I was naive at 22. Yeah, I had a lot of young men around me all the time, but they were like a big band of brothers. Yes, they tease me, sometimes too much, but I never felt they would harm me. I always felt safe with them. Perhaps, naively, I thought I would still be okay. I guess it was the upbringing with my brothers and the constant need to avoid their behavior that gave me this pretty quick reflex. I call it my matrix reflex. And my decision making is split lightning fast. And I'm thinking, like hell I will. Nobody would even know I'm here. Nobody would know what happened. It just was a different time without cell phones, without communication. I had a camera <laughs> with film. And the only thing, the only thing that kept me going through is knowing that the Pope was waiting for me. Yeah, Pope John Paul II. He was going to be at the raceway, Laguna Seca. And Thankfully, for my Hispanic mother, when the Pope's coming to town, you drop everything. You drop everything and you plan your entire week around it. So, of course, even though I was going to be way up in Fairfield and he was going to be way down in Monterey County, I was expected to hightail it down there and meet them to be there with the Pope. And thankfully so. Because my parents were the only ones expecting to see me that day. They were the only ones who really knew my itinerary, what I was doing that day and when I would come home because I wasn't planning to go back to the office. And nobody would be missing me. My girlfriend would have thought I was at my boyfriend's house. My boyfriend would have thought I was at my family's house. So when this sheriff says, why don't you go inside and take a look? I'm thinking, this is where bad stuff could really go down. There's no way in hell I'm getting in there because there's no way in hell I'm getting out. So I kept my head together and I said, yeah, I'm not really qualified for that. I think you need the architect. I need to go see what they're doing on the job site with the actual construction. I'm really grateful for my mother having so much faith to demand for us to be there because who else would have known where I was? My mother's profound Catholic faith kept me focused that day on getting to her, getting to the Pope, getting to what would be goodness. Because if I had had my mind framed around needing to prove a point that day, needing to prove to these guys on site that I was as tough as they were, that I belong to be there on their terms, I probably would have walked into that cell. 
Instead, when I look back on it now, I see the dichotomy between how my mother was framing our day in a sense of goodness and how that drew me away from what was most assuredly an evil moment. If something did happen, nobody would have known. There was no threat of them being incarcerated. It was validly threatening at a time when, even in the workplace, sexual harassment was not illegal. And I feel like, wow, that was a real narrow miss. It was really hard. And it wouldn't be the last time, although I would never do a jail again. I did go back to the site because I had to throughout the construction. But at that point, I think I did earn some level of respect and some known that I wasn't going to give in to their bad behavior. But at the same time, who should have to go through that? I don't want you to go through that. That's why we made noise. That's why we've always made noise. Taking a stand, showing them that they're not going to have that power over you. They're going to think twice the next time another woman walks onto the construction site. They might want to act in the same way, but perhaps that stall, that moment of I won't engage and I'm not afraid, was enough for them to realize they were acting badly, they were acting immaturely, unprofessionally. In the least bit, it wasn't any fun for them, so why do it again? That's what we hope for. The fact that this still exists makes it feel like change is slow. We know this is that slow change, but when you look at it all at once, this is actually changing really quickly. This is where we band together. We tend to want to protect ourselves a lot, but we will fight for other people. I'm not encouraging you to put yourself in a situation that could be harmful, but if it's difficult, you do have the courage to walk through it and get to the other side. When you're fighting for more than yourself, when you're fighting for every female and you're fighting for generations of females to come, you really do get courageous. So the next time you feel like you're the imposter, that this isn't your comfort zone, that you're alone in the struggle, know that you will have the gratitude of so many other women in so many other generations of women coming after for you taking that stand, for you having the courage to just get through that moment, speak to it and speak out loud and gather the attention on, oh boy, these slow burn items, these slow evolving circumstances will quicken. That's the beauty, right? That's what we want. Step into your truth, ladies. Ciao.